You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Today's sermon is from John 12, 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of an expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was the ointment not sold for the 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on an account of him, but also to see Lazarus, he who was raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Thank you, Hannah. If you'll pray with me. Lord, we pray that this morning from the singing and on into now the preaching of your word and then the rest of the service, Lord, that every moment, every moment as we've just heard in your word here, that it would be used to declare the worth of Jesus that you would be highly exalted and the treasure that you are would be made clear to us, that our eyes would be opened once again, Lord. When we come in, we come in, Lord, there's a, we live in a gloomy, foggy world and sometimes that sets over our eyes and our hearts and so we come in and sometimes we're coming in almost peering through a fog and so we just pray, would you just blow through that, Lord, so that we can see you clearly and be amazed at you and respond to you rightly. Change us this morning. Grow us this morning. But Lord, most of all, may you get lots of glory this morning. Oh, Lord, be precious in our sight. In Jesus' name we pray, and the church says, amen. Amen. A few months ago, we were visiting my parents and family out of town as we were in Midland, which I'm also about to take another very quick trip there tomorrow for just a day uh, for a a follow-up doctor's appointment. But we were visiting my family a few months ago, and we were at one night, we're all sitting around the table, and we're eating, and you know, my sisters brought her, her children over, so there's cousins, and we're, we're all just sitting around this table, and, and we're laughing, and we're talking, and we're eating, and there's just lots of noise. And, and I began, as I often do, I sort of take the conversation serious all of a sudden, but, and I just began to ask my dad about uh, his time growing up. My dad grew up in Mexico, 
uh, came by himself to the United States many years ago. And I just began to ask him about his time growing up as a young kid. And he began to rehearse that season of life. And as he's talking, you could just see he's just filled with joy, this glow in his face, this glow in his heart as he's, as he's talking about what he used to do. He was one of the shepherds that I interviewed uh, in, before our shepherd series for, for our Advent series. He, he served as a shepherd. So he's rehearsing all this time of his life. And there was a point, though, when he started to talk about his dad. Started to talk about my grandpa who had passed away many years ago, and you could feel the meaningful moment that began to just set down at the dinner table. As he began to talk about his dad, you, you could see the glow of happiness that was there as he recounted his dad and rehearsed all the wonderful ways his dad loved him and cared for him, and, and you could hear and see and feel this love and affection and adoration that my dad had for his dad. And at one point, at one point, now my dad was not an emotional guy. Growing up, I think I saw my dad cry maybe two, three times. Part of our story was he was a very hard man, very mean. Not anymore. By God's grace, not anymore. He began to talk about his dad, and there's a point where he began to be overcome with emotion. There's a point, the glow of happiness and the, the talking, but as he's rehearsing, you're seeing it happen as he's talking, and, and it gets to this point where he can't even contain himself anymore. He can't talk anymore, because if he talks, he's going to burst with crying, and so he just gets quiet, and you see him almost as if, it was almost as if his mouth and his eyes were trying to hold in everything. And if he opened any one of those, it would just burst out with emotion. And you could just feel this at the table, the dinner table, that had been filled with laughter and noise and eating sounds and kids was completely quiet. It was almost like this, everyone kind of was looking and recognizing, this isn't kind of normal for dinner time. <laughs> This isn't what we do. We don't sit there and watch our dad almost burst in tears with emotion. But we sat there and some of the kids began to leave and some others began to pick up their, their plates and walk away. And it was the sweetest thing. All the respectable rules of what happens at the dinner table went out the window in that moment. As we all stopped and watched and listened and it became clear to us it became very clear to us through my dad's display of overwhelming affection that he treasured and adored, admired. He loved his dad. His affection revealed the great worth that his dad was to him. His affection revealed the worth of his dad. We are made by God in such a way that what we treasure, what we admire, what we count as great worth, we will love. And what we love, we cannot help but declare its worth and value to others. God has made us that way. There may even be some scriptures coming to mind in your mind. And that is what is happening in John chapter 12. 
That's what's happening in these verses. But, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Sorry, I'm getting over some sickness here. So we may have several moments like that. But in John chapter 12, that is, that is what's happening. But in a far greater way, as Jesus sits at the dinner table of Lazarus and Martha and Mary, the dinner is interrupted. All the respectable rules of what happens at the dinner table is interrupted with a display of a wonderfully overwhelming worth of Jesus. That's what we see here. It's a declaration. These verses, when we read them, I hope this is what you first had. It is a declaration of the wonderful, extravagant worth of Jesus. Did you see that? I hope, I hope that's what you began to see. These verses are declaring to us that when our eyes are opened to the extravagant worth of Jesus, the right response is for our hearts to be compelled towards an extravagant love for Jesus. That's, that's the declaration. Jesus is, his worth is so great. He is the treasure of the universe. The most highly lifted up and exalted one. And so the only right response is an extravagant love to declare his extravagant worth. Amen? Amen. Follow with me. Oh, I've been brewing on this, saints. And as we're singing, I was just bursting there. So I hope, I hope you can catch up with my heart as well. As John has done all throughout the gospel, he will show us the worth of Jesus by putting before us. He's done this so well over and over again. He will show us a right response next to a wrong response. And then Jesus himself will respond and it is all put in front of us as evidence to say, how will you respond? And church, you know what our desire is this morning for you. May we join in with the, the right. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. May we join in with the right response this morning. May we join in. The Gospel of John up to this point in chapter 12 is now slowing down. The first 11 chapters, John has moved through very quickly. He's given these miracles, these amazing things that Jesus has done as the light of the world breaks into this gloomy and dark world. And the power of Jesus to go forth and to shine forth and to affect people's lives and change circumstances and change lives for his glory. And he's been moving for about three years through the first 12 chapters. I don't know if you caught that. We've been moving through three years, almost, almost three years of Jesus' life and ministry. And then we get to John 12. And it's like he slows down. Everything begins to halt. It's like John is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Just in case you missed it. You think Jesus, his greatest glory is in all of those first 11 chapters let me show you. We're going to slow down and see where he shines the most. And he takes the last half of the Gospel of John for a week of Jesus' life. And do you know what week it is? It's the Passover week. It's the week Jesus is on his way to the cross where his glory in the midst of gloom would shine forth the brightest. John doesn't want us to miss a thing when it comes to seeing 
the worth of Jesus. And so we slow down. We slow down. And may we then respond to him rightly. So John chapter 12, we first see the right response And we see it through, and this is the first point, the extravagant love of Mary. The extravagant love of Mary, verses 1 through 3. As Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, he stops back in the town of Bethany where these sisters, Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus, live. And they are hosting a dinner to honor Jesus. And why are they honoring Jesus? Well, if you remember, we were first introduced to Martha and Mary and Lazarus a couple weeks ago in chapter 11. Because Lazarus was a dead man. Lazarus actually had died and was buried away in a tomb. And we got to see Jesus overflowing with his love for this little family as he met them in their greatest sorrow, as it seemed that death had swiped their brother's life away. And Jesus declared to these sisters that he himself is the resurrection and the life. It was a huge moment. It's going to come back up here in a second. He is the resurrection and the life. And he displayed that life-giving power for all to see as he went to the tomb of Lazarus and called him by name and commanded him to come out. What a powerful passage. So powerful. He goes and at his word, the word that became flesh, that created all things, now comes to this tomb where the stench of death is and tears are being cried and sorrow is drenching every heart. And he goes with a passion and a power over death. And he says, come out, Lazarus. And in that moment, All creation and death itself had to bend its will and submit to the God of the universe. And Lazarus, what? Comes out alive, doesn't he? Their eyes, they witnessed this. This was a pillar marker in their lives. It's a pillar marker in the gospel of John. It's the very center of the letter, of the book, of the gospel. That's pivotal. It's a center pillar moment for people. It was the moment when they decided, the Pharisees said, we absolutely have to kill him. Who is this? And instead of worshiping and counting him as great worth, they said, we have to kill him. It is a defining point. It's a defining point that says, that separates the worshiper from the ones who will reject Jesus. Their eyes in that moment had been opened, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, to the extravagant worth of Jesus. They literally had found the resurrection life in person. He really is the king of the universe that commands all creation. He really is the resurrection and life of God that overwhelms death itself. And that their eyes have beheld the worth of Jesus. There is none other like him. Nothing in this world that can compare to him. And so now here they are hosting a dinner to honor Jesus. And it really is the sweetest picture. One one commentator in, in my study, he said this. This little line, this is a beautiful picture of Jesus with his friends. 
And it really is. I couldn't agree more. It is the sweetest picture of Jesus, the king of the universe, who cares to sit at a little table with these seemingly unknown people. They're known to him, but we're just introduced to him. Those are the types of things, saints, that's not a main point, but those are the types of things as you're doing your reading throughout the year. I know the temptation. I feel it like, oh man, I got I to gotta get through this chapter and I got to get here. And if I, I want to move through the year and get done and all this, and we could just read that, that Jesus, who just raised a man from the dead and who is in between that this time of then going into Jerusalem, the very next day, he's going into Jerusalem where people want to kill him, and he knows what he's entering into. And yet here in between, Jesus sits with these little precious saints that he loves. What a sweet thing. Our Savior is not overwhelmed at any moment. He was about to enter the most overwhelming moment of his life here on earth. And yet he always, always has his eyes set on his precious ones. How sweet is that? Don't, don't just, when you get to things like that, you just pause and you just thank Jesus that he cares about his people. He is not more, the king of the universe welcomes us to this table. So sweet. The sweetness of his people then expressed in their thankfulness in their little way by the means in which they have. They Let's, let's host a dinner for Jesus, for this immeasurably worthy one. And so Jesus is reclining at the table with Lazarus. Martha is serving, but the passage draws specific attention to what Mary is doing. Mary, who at one point in chapter 11, and these are, the, these, are the, these are the sweet things of Scripture. I love how the Lord has just pieced it together. At one point in chapter 11, verse 32, she is heartbroken, overcome with sorrow, weeping at the feet of Jesus. And now she interrupts this dinner to honor Jesus and once again postures herself at the feet of Jesus, this time with a heart of overflowing gratefulness and an extravagant display of love for Jesus. Mary takes a pound of expensive ointment that had a smell as a perfume that we, we learn later is worth 300 denarii. And during this time, just so we start to get the math of, of the worth, in a sense, the value of this, this ointment, uh, John wants to make clear, he says it's an expensive ointment. And we later hear it's, this three, it's worth 300 denarii. Well, during this time, one denarii, one piece of silver was a, about a day's income for the average person. So one piece of silver denarii for one day's income for the average person. This ointment that is being poured on Jesus' feet is worth 300 pieces of silver, nearly a year's income being poured out on Jesus's feet. This is an expensive ointment, an expensive perfume. And Mary interrupts this dinner by taking this, this ointment or this oil and, and falling at Jesus's feet. And she begins to pour out the ointment on his feet. And she takes her hair. She takes her hair and begins to wipe 
his feet with her hair. What would you do if you're sitting at the table to host the dinner of a very respectable person and your sister comes in and does this? You would be upset. It would, you would be taken off guard. You would say, this is not the respectable rules of what happens at the dinner table, Mary. We are to be grabbed by her actions. I think we read it and we, we can read things in the scripture and we just kind of say, oh yeah, yeah, sure, why not? No, it, John is saying, this was shocking. This was not normal. This was interrupting the dinner with something Something different. It was like my dad beginning to burst out in tears as we're trying to eat. And we're, oh, oh, let's stop, let's stop what we're doing here. Seems like something more weighty is happening now. That's, that's what starts to happen here. So let it just grab you. John is grabbing at our hearts. This expensive perfume. She bows at his feet. She begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Culturally, to deal with someone's feet was not a respectable thing. It was reserved for the lowest of the lows. It was reserved for the lowest servants. If you remember, we, we rehearsed this when we first started John. John the Baptist was talking about the, the worth of Jesus and that he wasn't even worth. John wasn't, wasn't even worthy of touching the sandal, of untying the sandal of Jesus. He's saying, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest servant of Jesus. And so we, we rehearsed then how disciples would follow their rabbis. And they were, they were expected to serve the rabbi. They were expected to help the rabbi. They were expected to, to learn and love and care for and get what's needed for the rabbi. But when it came to washing the feet, the dirty feet, not even the disciples were expected to do that. They would say, no, that's, that's for a lower job. I, I think of uh, Dirty Jobs, the show Dirty Jobs. I don't even know if it's still on TV. It used to be on TV years ago. Dirty Jobs, uh, where this guy would travel around and he would just look for dirty jobs. He would look for the worst jobs possible, where it's stinky and grimy and gross and the stuff no one wants to do. And, and then he does it that just to prove to everybody you don't want to do this. And it's the grossest thing. And so the show is Dirty Jobs. If this show existed during the time that Jesus was walking on this earth, one of the episodes would surely be the one who washes the feet of people. It would be the dirty job no one wants to do. Imagine people are coming in, their feet, they've been walking in these sandals all day. They're walking in dirty roads. These were not all paved roads. They, they, they're walking on dirty, grimy roads all throughout the day, sweaty. They're walking on roads where animals are trotting, where animals are pulling crates. And there's, you know what animals do when they walk on roads? You've, you've all been, we've all been to a parade. We all have all seen the horses and what they do. And there's stuff on the, on the road. And, and, and here people are walking on the road. And now they're coming in to eat. Who wants to wash those feet? You can see the lowest of the lows have to touch those feet. And I hope already you begin to remember, oh my, this same Savior is going to be washing some really dirty feet in just a couple chapters.
It was the most humbling position in the room. And now here Mary is at the dinner table, recognizing the worth of Jesus and what is the right posture to have at his feet, humbling herself and exalting him. You could say, in one sense, this is the picture. The lowest part of him, his feet, is still greater and higher than the greatest part of us. His most dirty part, when he walked this earth, his most dirty part, still far greater than my greatest part. That, that's what's being pictured here. That's what is being displayed as Mary wipes his feet with her hair. Now, and remember that. Culturally, the hair of a woman was, was a covering. P, uh, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, it's, it is a beautiful glory for a lady. Her hair is this beautiful glory upon her. And here Mary is. She takes what is the beautiful glory given by God to her. What could maybe even be a prized possession of her physically. And, and, and she takes these valued possessions of her hair and her most expensive ointment. It's what she has, what she owns, what she possesses. And, 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 and she takes them to Jesus and she puts them on Jesus' feet. She herself, it's this, it's this declaration in this moment. Though these are my earthly possessions, though these could be considered my earthly treasures, you, Jesus, are the greatest treasure. And they belong on your feet. Isn't that beautiful? It was a declaration that Jesus is the true treasure of her life as she laid down that which would be considered her earthly treasures at his feet. Jesus is her treasure, and so she takes what she has. Hear that. She takes who she is and what she has, and she lays them down in humble submission and loving adoration and worship of Jesus. And not only can you see this extravagant display of love and worship of Jesus, but you can smell it tangibly. You can smell it tangibly. We're told the house was filled with the fragrant aroma of this perfume. I joke about this. I, I don't know why these illustrations come to me sometimes, but I, I, when I was young, my dad, he st this is still true, when we go and visit, he, I, he would go into the, he would get home from work, hard day's work, he'd go into the, the, the bathroom, get cleaned up, and come out, and, and you knew when he was cleaned up and ready to go, because this aroma of Stetson would fill the room. It would just fill the house. And even as a kid, you just got used to it. Like, that's, that's my dad. My dad's entered the house. He's ready to go. And, and now even my girls know the smell. My dad gave me one Stetson, and one day I tried it on. I walk into the room. I go, that smells like grandpa, dad. They know the smell. 
We are a people of senses capturing us to see, to hear, even to smell. And God, God relates to us in some of these ways. Remember, even in Philippians chapter four, he says, your generosity, your sacrificial giving of who you are and what you have. Do you know what it's like? It is like an aroma that goes up a fragrant offering that goes up to God and is pleasing to God. God is relating us to us in ways that we can understand. Here is an aroma as she's sacrificially laying down the treasures of her life before Jesus to say, you are the greatest treasure. And an aroma is filling the room. Saints, saints, I hope that captures your heart. A couple questions as we walk through this. Are you freshly aware of the unmatched worth of Jesus? As you're reading your Bible, as you're coming to church, as you're wondering, why are we singing the songs we sing? Why are we, what do we do, what we do? Are, are you just freshly aware, are you just coming back to that Jesus is, is supremely more valuable than anything in this world? Are you freshly aware as Mary was freshly aware? Are you freshly aware that despite all of the earthly treasures you may have, Jesus is still the greatest treasure? Are you aware of that? Are you freshly aware of that? Another question. I love it because with this aroma that was filling the room, this aroma that filled the room, it was almost as if it was this, this, this smell that declared worship was happening. It was this smell that declared Jesus is worthy. It was a smell that declared an extravagant love was being Declared in that moment for Jesus. This aroma declared all of those things. Just like when my dad walked in the room and he declared, Dad's home. He's ready to go. He's cleaned up. When this aroma filled the room, it declared, Jesus is here. Worship. Love him. Treasure him. The greatest treasure just walked into the room. That's the aroma. An aroma of extravagant love for an extravagantly worthy Savior. So a question, when people encounter you, is that the aroma of your life? Is that the aroma of your life? When people leave you, are they saying, it was like I took in a whiff of the loving adoration and worship of Jesus? When they leave you in conversation, do they leave saying, oh my goodness, the aroma of the worth of Jesus just filled and permeated us, our time together. Is that what people leave when they encounter you? So I guess another question tacked onto that would be, what is the aroma of your life?
doesn't declare the worth, the supreme worth of Jesus. Wouldn't declare a loving adoration and worship of Jesus. What is the aroma permeating your home? For those of you who live in apartments, what is the aroma permeating your apartment? For those of you young folks who don't have a home or have an apartment, but maybe you have a room, what is the aroma permeating your room? What's the aroma permeating your social media posts? What's the aroma permeating your parenting? What's the aroma permeating your singleness? What's the aroma permeating that relationship? Your marriage? Your work? Your neighborhood? Is there an aroma where your neighbors say, Oh my goodness, I can't go buy that house because the aroma of Jesus is so strong. What is the aroma? permeating your lives. Church, don't we desire, and I could say this of so many of you, oh my goodness, the aroma of the worth of Jesus just fills the room. As I'm singing with you, as I'm talking to you, as I see you suffer, the aroma of a loving adoration and worth of Jesus just fills the room just fills the conversation. It fills the relationship. I hope that doesn't sound weird. I'm not talking about some supernatural thing, just filling the room and all this and stuff. But in one sense, people do leave with a whiff of something. Do they leave with a greater sense of that the aroma coming from your life is definitely one of loving, treasuring, and worshiping? But is it something else? Is it not Jesus? What is the aroma of your life that you love and treasure and worship that permeates the room when you walk in? Oh my, may people leave us saying, oh my goodness, the love, the aroma of the worth of Jesus and a loving adoration for Jesus just fills that, our relationship. May that be what's, what happens. Amen? Amen. Oh boy. This whole love, extravagant love, I, it's not something that's weird. I'm not talking about we have to bring banners and ointments and start <laughs> going around the room. And, you know, I'm not talking about stuff like that. But are you taking, I think, a as an extravagant love that breaks into our lives that says Jesus is worth everything to me. He's the treasure. Is that we then take who we are and what we have and we lay it down at Jesus' feet and say, all this is for you. Right? That's what Mary's doing. That's what we're called to as we behold the worth of Jesus. All right. Not everyone responds this way, clearly. Second point, we see the wrong response to Jesus. We see it in the extravagant love of Judas. Oh, there's love happening. There's love happening in Judas's life right now. Let, let, let's unpack that. We learn that Judas, 
the one who will betray Jesus and yet is masked as a disciple of Jesus is sitting at the table as well. John sort of inserts this moment. It, it sort of catches us off guard, doesn't it? We, we, we have been caught up in these first three verses. Oh my goodness, we've only gone through three verses. Three verses. We've been caught up in beholding the worth of Jesus and the extravagant love that should be the response to our our extravagantly worthy Jesus. And we've been caught up with that. And then all of a sudden, John interrupts that and says, oh, enter Judas. Enter Judas. Let me show you the wrong response. Let me show you where love is happening, but it's not a love directed towards Jesus. That's what we see here. It is the extravagant love of Judas, but it's not a love he shares with Mary for Jesus. It's an extravagant love for sin and self. Judas confronts Mary with what appears to be a righteous response. He sounds holy, doesn't he? He sounds godly. Why are you doing this? Mary, why was this not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? It sounds righteous and godly, but it's self-righteous. Essentially, he's saying, when you begin to translate that, right? He's, Mary is pouring this expensive ointment on Jesus' feet, the king of the universe, the resurrection and the life, the one who just brought a man who was dead in a tomb to life. Judas, you've seen every single thing he's done. Why are you wasting that ointment on Jesus' feet? Is essentially what he's saying. Jesus is not worth 300 denarii being poured out on his feet. Why do you love Jesus so much, essentially? Why would you waste that on Jesus? And John makes sure that we know what's really happening in Judas's heart here. In verse 6, he tells us he cared nothing about the poor because he was a thief. But because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Even though Judas has been living life around Jesus. He's been hearing the words of Jesus. He's been living life around those who follow Jesus. He's been doing some of the very same things that those who follow Jesus do. But Judas doesn't love what Jesus loves. Judas doesn't love the poor. Judas doesn't love Jesus. Judas doesn't love what Jesus loves. Judas loves Judas. He loves himself so much. He's willing to steal from Jesus. He's a thief. But he doesn't just steal money for himself. In this moment, you know what's happening? You know what's happening when we love ourselves above Jesus? You know what's happening? In his heart, he's actually trying to steal worship of Jesus for himself. 
In his mind, Jesus is not worth this extravagant love and worship. Jesus isn't worth this expensive perfume. What could I gain by that expensive perfume? I should have a share in that. Worshiping and loving Jesus isn't worth the money that could have been gained for my own benefit. That's what's in his heart and is slipping out of Judas's mouth. As he's watching this loving worship of Jesus, he's angered by it. As the aroma of worship fills the house, it stinks to him. It breaks my heart because when I look back at my life, there was a point where my mom, her eyes were opened to the immeasurable worth of Jesus. And everything became about Jesus. The music she played was about Jesus. Every conversation she wanted to have had to do with Jesus. She read books about Jesus. She studied Jesus from the Bible. She journaled about Jesus every day. And she wanted to talk to me about Jesus. And as a young man, as a youth, I hated it. The the aroma of the worth of Jesus that was filling our home, I was blind to it. And it was stunk to me. And I remember telling her one time, she, she tried to put on some music. I said, oh, I hate this music. It sounds so bad. It all sounds the same. It's bland. But I was just blind to the the beauty and the glory, supreme value and worth of Jesus. But it showed by the way I hated people worshiping Jesus. I hated that she wanted to give so much for Jesus. All her time and her energy and her effort. And she wanted to be with Jesus' people. And I just want to go home. I want to go be with friends. I want to go be in that sinful relationship still. When I look back, I just, I say, oh my, I was Judas at the table. Notice Judas sounds religious and spiritual. He's hanging out among the religious, but... Jesus was not Judas's treasure. Judas treasured the things of this world and worshiped himself. He didn't want those earthly goods to be poured out on Jesus's feet. He he wanted to pour those on himself. The earthly riches and personal gain. That's what sin does in our hearts. That's what sin does. It still does that. For those of us who have who've tasted of Christ and His saving grace, we live in this already but not yet, and we still wrestle with sin. It comes around, right? We have that, we have that moment of confession. Because sin still tempts us this way. Here's, here's what it does. It tries to devalue Jesus and exalt ourselves. 
That's the simple, right? That's a simple way. You know that. It wants to devalue Jesus and exalt ourselves. Instead of humbling, bowing ourselves to the feet of Jesus, we bow ourselves to the passions and pleasures of this world and to self. Remember, we saw this last week in the Pharisees in chapter 11. It was the very same thing. That's what we're seeing over and over again. They, they valued power and politics and personal gain above Jesus. And now here is Judas with the same heart. And why does he have the same heart? Because it's consumed by sin. It's overcome by sin. Judas has the same heart valuing money and comfort and self-indulgence above Jesus. And we actually get a glimpse. We do get a glimpse of what, what earthly value or worth Jesus puts on Jesus. Do you know when we see that? When he betrays Jesus for a cost. And you know how much it was? 30 pieces of silver. A month's income. He was furious that a, almost a year's income would be poured out on Jesus' feet. But the value he had for Jesus is, but I'll betray you for 30. Sin, may, I'm going to say this. Sin makes us do stupid things like that. It blinds us and we make bad decisions. We value things that have no value. And we take the one of supreme value. And we say, it's, you're worthless. That's what we do. That's what we do, man. I, that's what we're tempted to when we're tempted to sin. Sin is saying that. This is more valuable than Jesus. Take it. Go after it. Don't you want that? It can satisfy you more than he can. It will fulfill your joy and pleasure more than he can. But it's the lies from the pit of hell. Nothing can satisfy you like Jesus. Nothing can care for you and tend to you and love you like Jesus can. Nothing ever will give you greater joy and pleasure than Jesus will. That is the lie of sin. To devalue Jesus and to make other things more valuable. When we see something like this in Scripture, it's fitting to pause and ask questions. Where am I tempted? Where are you tempted to value something more than Jesus? These are big questions, so you just chew on those. And I'm trusting the Spirit of God to be at work in us, but where are we tempted? We're always tempted to value something. Last night, I had, to, I had to say I'm sorry to Lily this morning because last night it was late. I'm still trying to work on things and, and it's getting really late and she's not, in, not asleep yet and, and she wanted me to care for her and I got frustrated and angry and in that moment I was valuing my time. I'm valuing what I need to get done. There was a point it hit me. Lay down your life for your daughter. That's what Jesus has done. Parent, like Jesus, is supremely worthy 
of your parenting. And I was pierced by that. So you see, we, we, we encounter this temptation all the time. Where are you tempted to value something or someone more than Jesus? Do I count everything as loss compared to the worth of knowing Jesus? And, and, and that's reflected in a life that, that leads me to treating Jesus as the treasure I long for and, and holding on to things of this world more loosely and living more gladly and generously for Jesus because I count everything else as loss in light of knowing Jesus. Or do I count loving and worshiping Jesus as loss compared to the life I want to live in this world. You see, you hear the difference? If I love Jesus like he's supposed to, I might lose things. I might have to change things. I might have to let go of things. And I don't want to lose those. I'm valuing, like Judas, the things of this world more than I am Jesus himself. And that could be a number of things. What am I keeping and holding as my treasure that I'm not willing to lay down at Jesus' feet and say, this is for you. My time. This is for you, Jesus. Because you're supreme, supremely worth it all. My energy. My privacy. I'll let people in. I'll let Jesus in. I'll let Jesus' people in, but only to a degree because this is mine. I'm the king of this little island. That sinful relationship we know we shouldn't be in. My money, my job, my reputation. We're tempted in every way to value things more than Jesus. We've seen Mary's response. We've seen Judas's response. And last, we see Jesus step in and we hear his response. The righteous rebuke of Jesus. Judas is not fooling Jesus. And Jesus responds to Judas, leave her alone. You want to know who's right in this and what's happening here, you want to know who at the table is responding rightly to Jesus. Jesus looks at Judas and says, shut up. Leave her alone. I love our shepherd. My goodness, I love our shepherd. Gentle. Gentle with his sheep. Courageous and bold in the face of wolves. Leave her alone, confronting this false accuser. That's what he's doing. He's accusing Mary of wrong, doesn't he? Isn't that what the false accuser does? I'm just trying to live a life of worshiping Jesus. And the false accuser comes, oh, really? Really? You want to live for Jesus and you're doing this? And Oh, the false accuser just in every way wanting to hinder us. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always will have with you, but you do not always have me. Oh my. Jesus is not belittling helping the poor. He's, he's, he's calling Judas out 
for his lack of seeing the worth of Jesus rightly. Judas in that moment, as we said, he's saying, this is more valuable than Jesus. Go get the money for it. And you know what? We'll feed the poor maybe. But I'm going to use that for something else. He's, he's devaluing Jesus. And Jesus says, no, Mary has me in her heart and in her sights at the right place. You will always have these things. You don't always have this. I am worthy for what she's and what she's doing. I am worth it. It was fitting and right for Mary to honor and love and worship Jesus in the way that she did, because Jesus is really worth that. But Jesus makes it clear here, if you notice this, Jesus makes it clear <clears throat> that her act of anointing his feet was way more meaningful and important than even she knew. It was pointing to something even greater, an even great, most gl more glorious moment, a moment, in a, in a, a, a pillar moment that would, that would shine forth his glory and his worth more than anything else had previously. He's pointing to this moment. Jesus is taking all of our eyes. He's taking Mary and Judas and our eyes as we see this generations later. And he's saying, I want you to see something. I want you to look ahead with me to the most glorious moment that you're going to be behold. And it's in, it, together with him. He's looking ahead to this moment. This moment where his unmatched worth and glory would be displayed. And it would be the moment of his burial. His death. On the cross, his burial, which then would lead to his glorious resurrection. He's looking ahead to a moment. So he says, let her keep this for the day of my burial. He's looking ahead to this moment where the resurrection life that had pierced the, the world for, this, for the sake of Lazarus, that led Mary and Martha and Lazarus to see his supreme worth and to say, you are worthy of all of our worship. And he's saying, look ahead, there's another marker being stamped into the ground, and it is my death. It is my burial. That's where you will look. That's where generations from now will look over and over again. They won't stay peering at Lazarus's empty tomb and Lazarus's burial and empty tomb. They will peer at the empty cross and the empty tomb of Christ where he was buried. And they will behold the resurrection life in Christ himself. And that will be the supreme point in all of history where God's people from this point on would look over and over and over again and say, he is supremely worthy. We sang it this morning, didn't we? Worthy is this lamb who is slain, worthy of all praise and adoration and glory and power and strength. Worthy. Where do we behold? You want to grow, saints? We all want to grow. You want to grow in beholding the extravagant worth of Jesus? Don't just look at today, here and now. Well, you know, he did this. We got to eat. Like, thank him for all these little means of grace today. But the pillar marker that will never change, just like Mary and Martha and Lazarus were saying, Lazarus was dead and he's alive. He was buried and he's resurrected. The pillar marker for us is the cross and the empty tomb. 
That's where you look over and over again and you say, Lord Jesus, let me see your worth and your value and let me respond in right, extravagant love and worship that you are worthy of. Amen? Amen. Oh, that's why John chooses to take the whole last half of the gospel for a week. This, this, the first half of the book is called the book of signs. We, if you remember this, we rehearsed this the very first time. It's all these moments. He's showing his power and his glory and his goodness. The last half, it's called the book of glory because it's all pointing to the moment his glory would shine forth through the gloom of the cross. Oh my. The most glorious act. Oh, church, if we want to grow in an aroma of love and worship for our Savior, we don't just try to muster it up. It's not, it's not a personality thing. It is an adoration thing. We must grow in adoring the supremely valuable Christ. That's how we grow in love and adoration and worship. We look at the gospel and the Savior held within, and we worship. Amen. Stand and let's pray.